Hi, I'm Ed Murphy. I'm retired from the No Toten Blues Festival, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I have to ask you, I've had a few people that um, I've talked to who were at Woodstock. What was your memory of Woodstock? Woodstock was just totally amazing. Um, Of course, there's all the music, but it was the issue of being together with all the other people there that were just the same. It was our world. It was our state. It was our universe. People were good. They were nice. We had a great time. And there was just this phenomenal music in that was the background for the whole thing. It was just a, an incredible weekend of music and, and uh, was it peace, love, and music? Yeah. How far back were you? Like, how far back from the stage were you? Um, I actually, it was an unusual situation because it, when we went up there, we went up a little bit early, but not too early. We drove in the back way, and we had – I found a, a shopping carriage, and we put all the stuff in the shopping carriage, and we walked right up to the top of the hill. So our tent was right on top of the hill, just just a little bit out of sight. And the first day we sat on top of the hill. Um, but what I do remember is, and, and we just, we were awake. We were at the festival. We were listening. We were with people. We were doing things. Um, Saturday, I believe it is, uh, Sly and the Family Stone came on. And it hit me that they're going to do stand. <laughs> and it, here you are like with 450,000 people and you know they're all going to stand up. I'm going to go to the front of the stage. Which I did. I I think I did it alone. I went with uh, three other friends uh, from my neighborhood and and I walked right to the front of the stage so when the Who came on, I was right there. Wow. When Townsend sent his guitar out into the audience. I would say probably landed about 30, 30 yards to my right. I was very pleased that I had managed to get, because, I mean, just sitting on the hill and absorbing all this stuff was more than enough. But having been able to make it up to the front of the stage for something like that was, I mean, I was just the happiest guy in the whole universe. <laughs> I got into music because I saw the movie, I think. I believe that that movie, which came out like a year later, had a major impact on, on me getting into music. So there are obviously iconic performances that I know from the movie that still are, are something that I relate to today. But being there, other than Sly and The Who, were there any others that just really struck you as being something really special at the time? Oh, uh, there was so much. But I, I mean... Uh... I I, I kind of lived inside the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young world for years after Woodstock. Um, also, incredible string band fan. Uh, the, the Johnny Winters, Can Heat, uh, 
and there was so much. I mean, it, the folk music days, uh, you know, John yeah. Sebastian, uh, Richie Havens. I mean, boom, they're getting my hair is standing up talking about it still. <laughs> it was, so, it was great. And I know talk about the movie. I, I actually used to go around with that movie to friends who would invite me to come to their house and would put the movie in the VHS and they'd ask me to talk about what really happened. You know, they'd stop the movie and what happened here, Ed? <laughs> so I mean, going to Woodstock was a big deal. Okay. So you were a musician at that point, were you not? Oh yes, at that at that point, I was playing in a little band um, with my two best friends, and it was very unusual. It was a piano, a guitar. I played bass and cello, and it was kind of like a kind of like a little trafficy kind of folky thing, very wow. out of out of tune with everything else. But I said I liked the incredible string band. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and then this was like at one point a very serious career path for you. Oh yes, that I I I think I'm a very typical product of of my time, and I kind of wandered through the college university thing. Probably, to be honest, what kept me in college was the Vietnam War. Uh, I wanted to play music. I wanted to write words. I wanted to be an artist. Um, I lived in that area era when there were, um, there were still artists, not just stars in music business. Right. So I, I, I really wanted that. And I thought that's what I was going to do. And I was hoping that that was what was going to, you know, come down the road. Enough so that you recorded at the record plant in New York City and also traveled to California to <laughs> hopefully seek a record deal, correct? Well, if you if you bang the thing on the head long enough, something happens, you know. <laughs> and going to the record plant happened in 76. So it took some years before we got to that point. And um, it, by that time, it really did look like something was going to happen. And we... The people in the record plant really liked what we did, and uh, we should never have left New York, in my opinion. But the uh, person that we had brought into the band as a vocalist, he had a lot of money, and he he persuaded us to pack up all this stuff and go to California. And the contacts that we had were actually based in Los Angeles, so it was easier for them. And um, we wound up in a in a rehearsal studio a place called db studios in san rafael with like production lights this whole thing and rehearsed and did a showcase um which if all things had worked out it would have we were right in there with boston and and these were the people that we would have been contemporaries with and competing with i guess um but uh basically what happened is i, I went into this as being a member of a band and with two of the other people, and one person had decided, with all the money, that uh, we were going to be his backup band, and we had the big fight in California, and I left. Do you remember what you would have imagined that career to be, or what you had hoped that being, if if this had been signed to a record label, what that would have meant, or what how you visualized that to play out? I have a suspicion we would not be speaking today. <laughs> 
I, I am so thankful uh, with all things that have come to pass. I'm so thankful that it didn't happen. I There's a number of times that I've been really happy that success has not come my way. And this was one of them because I don't think I would have been mature enough to deal with it correctly. Uh, it was a time when, you know, when you gave somebody who was like 25 years old a whole lot of attention, a whole lot of money, things didn't go right too often. Right. Uh, the music business at that point was full of full of drugs, full of of you know, make money and greed. Um, it was it was, you know, it was part of the reason I didn't mind when I left the states, leaving the states. I was in the music business. I didn't know what else I was going to what else I was going to do after I had worked with Keith. So I figured I was leaving it forever and ever when I came to Norway. Okay, but but I wonder was it was it success you were seeking or was it playing music that you were seeking i was playing music i i right. I, I loved it i the creative process still thrills the heck out of me and uh you know on the rare occasion when i get a couple words to sit together and i really like the way they work they kind of like float in front of my eyes and i go <laughs> or i happen to hit a chord on a guitar or or just something that falls in place i i just totally thrilled that those are my nirvana moments <laughs> in my life so i wonder when 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 things went sour with this band and you went back to new york city did you ever think about picking up the guitar and playing in a different format or continuing as a solo yeah. artist I think? yeah i i actually was fortunate enough um at that point i had been presented with the opportunity to go back to the record plant they said we could make a deal they wanted to do some kind of deal on points or something which i never really understood but i had an open door there and two of my very good friends uh two excellent guitar players had just finished being the backup band for lou reed oh so they had they had gone through all their process and had all this stuff and they were really really good and i think we sat down probably for three months or so and tried to put some things together and I had continually said to the record, I can't do it yet. I'm just, can you give me another week and I'll try it. And I, I just came to the point where I had realized it wasn't going to happen. I couldn't do it. What would that be? Like, what is that like an artistic mental block or? No, I think, think this, this goes again, goes back to my childhood and such. And, and basically I think what it was is I had, sorted out what had happened in California as a failure. And I became so nervous by that that I, I just didn't dare take the risk one more time. So rather than, than probably dealing with my head and fixing up the part that was broken there, I just kind of ran away from it. Interesting. But, but what you did, if I'm not mistaken, is that you got into the other side of the music business. Yeah. With art, like with production side and also artist management. Yes. Well, this is where I think to a certain degree, my life is a little um, Hunter S. Thompson or, or maybe Warren Zevonish or something like that. But um, I, because I had all this focus on music, I had, I got this figure in my life that was like a big brother. He passed away some years ago. And he was in the business. He did start with Bill Graham. He was in Vietnam and he came back from Vietnam. He somehow hooked up with Bill Graham in the Fillmore and he stayed there and he 
didn't come back to the family. I walked in to the Fillmore to a show one day, and here he is in the foyer. And this was like all my life. He was like my big brother. I I got Hmm. pictures of when we were zero on the beaches and such together. He was four years older than me. So here he is in in this business, and, and he's doing pretty good in the business. And he, I went to him at one point and said, you know, could you, could you help with this band, the one that went to California? He said, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll book you in the Palladium right now. I get this, no problem. And I go, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but what it was is I understood he was well connected. So when I came back from California, I needed to get a job. Right. So he said, okay, you can come, you know, you can come work with me at shows. And I, I mean, talk about having an unfair advantage. So I started working at the, at the Academy of Music, which the Palladium and Madison Square Garden, uh, Carnegie Hall, these kind of places. And normally in New York, when you started working on these shows, and this was great because this was in the beginning with this, all the original production people, the big deals were they were all friends at that point. And it was a great time to come in. Rather than being the guy that had to, you know, pick up the tape and do this, they were teaching me how to do things, really, either on purpose or because somebody had to do it because they couldn't do it. But here I was learning how to do a follow spot and how to rig and do other things that I had no idea were going to be important for me later on. But this was the job. Every weekend you could do Friday and Saturday, you get paid maybe 50 bucks and you know, really didn't have to do anything again for the rest of the week until the shows on the weekend weekend came up. So that was my entrance into production there. And it was inside the music business. I mean, I loved it. It, it. For me, music, I didn't have to play it. I just loved listening to it. I liked being around it. I liked the way it felt in my body. I, of course, when you're standing and your stage security and Jeff Beck is on the stage, you'd love to be there, you know? So there were these kind of things going on. And um, this is where like stories get, you know, really interesting. I, I can remember delivering uh, food to, to people at the Academy and, you know, there wasn't riders. There wasn't, things weren't like how it became this, it was a, a process, you know, slowly, but surely the chicken wings went out and sandwiches came in, uh, <laughs> you know, beers got put on ice, things got put on tables, the papers, cups and such disappeared and, you know, real stuff started happening. So I, I entered it at that time and it was really an amazing time to, to start in the business. So this would have been like middle seventies, right? Like 76, 77. Well, the, actually, I think my first shows that were, were about, 1971 oh okay i i my first show that i produced myself i mean it was just as a kid but was actually on the 22nd of august 1969 after coming home from woodstock was it because of woodstock no it was because i lived in an area that wasn't doing enough for kids and there were a lot of us um that were looking for alternative things and were a lot of, I grew up with, a, there was a lot of music in my life and a lot of kids that played music and a lot of bands. So we had an unbelievable park that nobody had ever been allowed to use for giving a concert or anything. But my dad being a policeman could put in a good word and he did that. What we were trying to do was to get attention for the young kids who, who didn't have activities in their, you know, we, 
we really didn't want to just hang around and do nothing. We were trying to find some positive things to do. This is 1969. You know, you do those things that way. Then you're trying to be positive. You're trying to communicate. We had meetings with the adults and, you know, try to talk to them that we, we wanted to do something more in life than whatever it was they thought we were supposed to be doing. And so this concert was put together before Woodstock to be kind of a start in the process of organizing the local kids to be able to do some of the things they wanted to do. What what did you walk away from that experience? Like, was it a really positive experience to put on that show? And Because and, I can imagine all the headaches involved in doing something like that. But had, when it ended, how did you feel? We had, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> the Parks Department delivered this stage. We hadn't thought out the idea that we, oh, we need electricity for amplifiers. So we had to run a 200-yard uh, cable from a cardiac hospital, which was next door to the park. <laughs> Luckily, we, they had the power that we needed. They ran this thing out. We had our wonderful day. With, it, my band played, and those two guys that I told you that played with Lou Reed, right. their bands played, and we we had uh, we pulled it off and we got a real good notice in the newspaper it was a very positive thing i think the it's best summed up by the fact that that started a series of concerts in my hometown in my neighborhood that still exist today wow how could you not be proud of that oh for sure so so when you got to be like the production coordinator at the palladium or the madison square garden Carnegie Hall. I mean, this was something that you knew something about or you had some exposure to both as a musician and as somebody who put on shows. Well, yes. I I, I guess I was interested enough that I understood what stage right, stage left was, and I knew why it was called upstage and downstage. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so uh, the thing is that when I started, most of the people that were in the business on the production side had no education in it. There were a few people that might have gone to school. Patrick Stansfield, for example, who was the god in production, uh, uh, he had gone to school. Michael Hearn, I think, had gone to school. But basically, most people, maybe they came from the military, uh, like Mitchell did in Vietnam. They, they were good at it because they were good at giving orders and you know and keeping things ship-shaped and this kind of stuff. And everybody learned from show to show. Right, but this is also the time when music became huge, when when bands became stars, where there was a lot of money going around. And, like, like you know, when you think about the 70s and the music industry, it's when it pretty well exploded, correct? Oh, yes. Like, you were right in the middle of that. Well, I, I, I came in, I think I, in a way, came, I saw the tail end of the golden age. When everybody, everybody was there because they loved the music and they loved the business and it was a brotherhood and there was no competition. And if somebody had a problem, everybody helped. And if it was another band, you, you, you gave them what they needed to get through it. You didn't give them a hard time. Um, I, I still refer to it and I, I tried to bake it into the No Told and Blues Festival that there is a brotherhood. Right. And and it's got to be that way. You got to help one another. You got to help people. That's what the music business is about. It's not about making trucks load of money, truckloads of money, and it's not about uh, being the biggest and the best. It's about you know 
people come to have a good time together, you got to give them what they're looking for. And you got to do that because you got a love for it in your heart. But I would imagine that you were also at a time when it became a little more competitive, when, when money became a big thing, and maybe when headliners didn't treat their opening acts very well, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, I think that's one of the reasons why I thought it was good to leave New York when I left New York. Um, I left New York, and I had, I had been given the opportunity to be Billy Joel's assistant tour manager, I could have been Bob Dylan's assistant stage manager. I had a number of other things, but I was I was looking at a landscape of, of people that were going nuts. And by this time, which was 78, the production people were as crazy as the stars. <laughs> you know, they, they, they really were. There were oh. so many schemes going on. So many people were making money, bills for things that didn't exist. Uh, I, at one time, I worked at Madison Square Garden. All I ever did was borrow things from people so that the people I was working for could write bills to the people that were paying the bills for something that was never ever paid for. And the way you got around it back then was that you'd give somebody a free ticket. <laughs> right. You know, so somebody would deliver a truckload of flowers and you give them six tickets, which he thought was a great deal. Unfortunately for the guy that got the six tickets, they were probably, you know, behind the stage or in sight lines probably. But those are the tickets that the coordinating guys could give us. And, and it started not to be a lot of fun. There was that angle to it. There was the cocaine that come into the business. And, and that was a lot of it in production. People were coming up with absolutely bizarre ideas on what they thought they could do. And I just never knew what was going to come around the corner anymore. And I had seen a lot of people who were good friends snap. All of a sudden, they would, you know, they'd be fighting or punching or verbal abuse to the. Uh, so it 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 did change tremendously. It changed very quickly, and it was it was a good. As I said, it was a good time to get out. When I had um, when I had taken the job. With Keith Richards, I had actually left. I I understood that I could not continue, and I had started to work in a mountain gear store. <laughs> okay, so at one point you 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 were kind of disillusioned about being a musician, and became kind of quit the music side of things, and then you mm -hmm. got into the production side and got disillusioned once again because of the way things are going. And then you wind up with Keith Richards. How did that happen? Well, I, I, it was all something that I, I even wonder a little bit today, and I guess I'll never really know. But I had, as I said, I had left. I had understood I wasn't making great career choices. And I had been invited to a lunch. And in the course of this lunch, or, or actually going to it, um, the person that I was with had taken me up to the Rolling Stones offices and he was having a little seance with Jane Rose, who at that point I think was a publicist. And I, I wound up waiting in the Rolling Stones office for a long time before they came back. And 
I was introduced to her and then, then we went out and had lunch and I basically forgot about it. <laughs> it went on about, I guess it, went, it took a month and I was at work at, at this mountain gear place and the telephone rang and they came and got me and said, you got a telephone. And so I, I took the telephone and it was Jane Rose. And she said that she wanted to send a limousine to pick me up and drive me to Keith Richards' house to do a job interview. Uh, I mean, you don't say no to that kind of opportunity, you know. No. And I had, I had, I, I had, I didn't know zip about Keith really, and I, the Rolling Stones for me at that point were a little bit passe, and you know, and I would just sit, sat with like this, you know, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, burnt out dope addicts I, who needs this i'm not going to take that job but by god ride in a limousine and <laughs> go to his house that i'm going to do and that's what i did and basically what happened was i found out that the man that i eventually got to meet because it took me a long time to get him downstairs he was doing his keith richards thing uh but when he came down, he was just the most charming little guy, just regular Joe, nice, easy to get along with. And I had no intentions of taking that job. And he said, will you come to work tomorrow? And I said, yes. <laughs> wow. Did, yeah. you, did you know what you were getting yourself into? Not the faintest idea. I had figured that basically what had happened was that when I had gone to the Rolling Stones office that day, Something had come up there, and this was this was Mitchell, the big brother guy, that, that was kind of like taking me under his wing. Right. And I, I think basically what happened was that they were looking for somebody that was a real goody two shoes. They wanted somebody that was straight, that you know, wasn't going to cause any trouble, um, somebody they could trust. And Mitchell said, "If there's somebody that's him, just Ned is the guy." <laughs> That's what my he's you know he's not going no way in the world he's not going to get in trouble he's allergic to it so I I think that's probably what opened the door and um, actually the only the only thing that ever happened when when I talked to her the day afterwards I said there's one thing I'm not doing and I'm not gonna no way no how run any drugs for you don't want to know about it don't put it in the albums don't put it in the books don't do anything like that other than that I'll be fine with this. And that was a promise. They told me that I'd never be put in a compromised position. I never was. Interesting. And then, so I presume you got to know the family uh, a bit doing, was it a year or two years that you were there? Oh, it's just about a year. So the the per <laughs> person that you weren't, you, you know, you initially said, oh, the Stones, they're washed out and they're druggies or whatever. Well, what did you walk away from, from that experience? I mean, how did you feel about Keith by the time you walked away from that experience? I, 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 I think I was a little bit in love. <laughs> he was such a strong personality. Um, he, he accomplished things that I could never seen any. I mean, he, he had times when he was a full-blown drug addict. There was no doubt about it. He, he pulled himself together. He'd, I remember we was doing some girls. He said, I, I got to straighten up, so I'm going to do a couple of things. And, you know, bang, he straightened up like I couldn't believe anybody could do. Uh, he, he wrote a, 
good God, I don't know how many songs. I think at one point he had said something about 54 songs that he had written or something like that, and then he had reduced it to 23 before he started to go over to Paris. Um, he had he had just shown such a strong personality, and when you were on the inside, he was really kind and, and loving guy. It was respectful as all heck. Did you see the creative side? Like, if he was writing that many songs, did you ever see him just working on songs? Yes. And is that, like, what would you imagine anybody would be doing? Or was it different because it's Keith Richards? Well, I, I, I think I was a bit awestruck because he did it in such a different fashion than I thought it was done. And in that sense, it, it was just like, it was like I was saying, he, he, he announced, I now have to write songs. <laughs> and he sat down for a number of days and he was in, he had a really nice little room with a fireplace and nice couch and, a, you know, books on the shelf and his guitar and his, I think he called it the, the Midnight Rambler, which was his like recording and record player and this little thing that he took on the road with him. And he, he'd just sit there and start bashing away at things and he had his pad out and he was writing words and he was doing his, you know, it was all right there. I can remember carrying that, that, um, that yellow pad of paper from the car and other places where he, when he was working on things, and I can remember, I have them as a matter of fact, I have the first, uh, the first version of Beast of Burden. Really? Which he had, he yeah, which he had left in my car. Which <laughs> another strange story, but that car wound up in the possession of the New York City Police Department. <laughs> had nothing to do with Keith or me, but uh, it was one of the things that they had confiscated, and and they, I, I got it back eventually. But um, he he just he just said, "This is what I'm doing now. I'm writing songs." Wow. And he. As I said, and he wrote a monster amount. For me to write a song, like if I could have gotten one or two out in a year, I think I'd been happy. And he, they were just like flying all over the place. <laughs> wow. Then you left after a year. And you you were also, so you went, became like Melanie's road manager. Yeah. Um, well, what really had happened was that my wife had returned to Norway. We we got married two years earlier, and and I had convinced her to come to the states and live in New York. And I don't think she really had a good time, and so she wanted to go home. And um, by this time, I guess it was seventy eight, around May. Keith was itching to go on tour. It was a some girls' time, and I was afraid to go on tour with the Rolling Stones. And a little bit of being in that house so long was it, it, it wasn't wasn't easy at all the time. Uh, Anita was having some problems and uh, was coming around the summertime, and I, I understood that my time I had a lot of time with Marlon bringing him to school, and we had a good time together, and that was a, a really nice accomplishment to get him to go to school, and he really loved it. Right. Um, but I was afraid of what was coming up, so I had decided that. Um, I had to terminate the situation, which I did. I, I, I had, I wrote a nice note and I thanked him and I said, you know, I'm going. And I was asked to, to stay on and go on tour, but I wouldn't do that. And um, I had 
now understood it was going to take me a little while to get my stuff together before I could move to Norway. And I, one of the things I was trying to do was to, to, to bring a car over and I had to wait a while. So I had a friend, a good friend who was Melanie at this time, Melanie's tour manager. So he asked me if I wanted to start to work with that. And, you know, that I, I saw that that would carry me through the summer, which I did do. And that, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> she was so, well, I mean, the, the ba- yeah, but the, the band was basically the same band that had just recorded the Asia album by Steely Dan. Wow. So the musical level of the Brecker Brothers where did it and, and a bunch of other people names are not right there at the tip of my tongue now, but it was an absolutely brilliant band. And, uh, you know, she really loved them and they really performed very well. And it, it was, it just was a wonderful thing to do. And we, we just put the little Melanie world into a whole nother atmosphere and a whole nother universe with a, a band like that. So it was a kind of fun thing to do. How, what did you know about managing, being a road manager at that point? I mean, you've obviously been a musician. You've done the production side. How much did you know about being a road manager? Well, that was some... Uh, now you, you you hit the core of the issue. <laughs> I I've never been afraid to give it a go. And all the people around me were doing this the first time themselves or had not done it a lot. They really, I mean, nobody had a great amount of experience with this stuff, even though I mean, it was the 70s, they're, they're people had great experience. But I mean, I was just put in the middle of this thing where you, one, you could see what was going on. And two, you really weren't supposed to be afraid of anything. So if something came up and you thought you could do it, you jumped on the opportunity. Now, what happened on the back end of this thing that Melanie had a bit of a strange husband, <laughs> Peter Shakarik, and um, he had gotten uh, rather upset at the record company. So he decided at one point he was going to take all the all the instruments that the record company had rented for the band and make them disappear. Oh, um, I had understood what he was trying to do, and Peter. He was a little scary guy, actually, for me. Um, I took the truck and drove it back to studio instrument rentals. And the people at the recording company, and I don't remember the name of it right now, but uh, they were closely connected with the BGs and a bunch of things. They were very thankful. And the guy who owned the company invited me in and to his office. And, you know, I really want to thank you for this. You know, um, and what he had done was he, he was the person that lined up the Billy Joel thing for me. Right. And the, the Billy Joel thing I thought was kind of scary because they were talking about tour manager, actually. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, you know, I'm in here in an interview and they want me to go. This is a world tour. Yeah. And I, I, I'm like, I, I really don't know. You know, I wasn't going to let that, come out in the conversation but i think they probably saw the body language so when and i think they must have had some favors going on because they did try to hire me what they said was that we'll have two tour managers you'll be one of them um and i thought it was a great idea at that point because what i thought i was going to do is i'd go on tour with billy joel and i'd hop off at oslo because oslo (laughs) was on the schedule but what what about your car well yeah 
The, the car, after a while, the car gets shipped on a boat and then disappears in, for a long, long time. So <laughs> that's another I, story. I have to ask you, though, what kind of car was it? Like, why was it that special oh, that you wouldn't just go and buy a car it, it in Europe? It was supposed to be a Corvette Stingray, oh. but I couldn't make the time thing work. So I would have to pay an incredible amount of tax. But what I did have was a Datsun B210. <laughs> they still laugh at me. They can't believe that anybody brought one of these things to Europe. <laughs> really, not so long ago, I had a friend who called me up. I hadn't heard from him for a long time. He said, I can't believe it. All the things you did, you brought a B210 to Norway? But, that was the best you could do? But why was it that important to you as opposed to buying it? I then? wanted to, What I wanted to do was I wanted to bring a Corvette. Because I would have made a fortune selling the Corvette oh, Norway. Okay, okay. But you see, it had to go a little longer than I had time to get over to Norway. And then there was an import tax that was just absolutely bizarre. Hmm. So it wasn't worth the effort. Okay, so what is it about you that all these opportunities come to you? Like you're not asking to be Keith Richards' assistant. You're not you know, asking to be... Billy Joel's road manager, and these these things are coming to you. What do you think? I mean, I, I don't know if you can answer this, but what what do you think it is about you that these these opportunities are presented to you? Well, I, I think it, I think the opportunities probably are presented to very many people, but very many people are more realistic in what they believe they can do than I have been. I, I basically haven't been afraid to say I can try that. I, I, as I said, I, I come from a generation, you know, when I grew up, the streets of America were definitely paved with gold and the future was just incredibly bright and everything was going to be super duper. Um, and, and, you know, my, my parents grew up in the depression. Uh, I had all that stuff in my background and, you know, I think I had a combination of all this, the, the great American dreams and the promises wrapped up together with my father saying, as long as you can use a broom, you'll have a job. Right. So I always figured, well, I could try. <laughs> and I, that's what I've been doing all my life. And that's what, I mean, I, there's very few times, and I don't think there's as many times as there are fingers on my left hand that I've applied to to have a job i've been asked which is great yeah and why i don't know i mean why why in the world would i be asked to join the administration of the very first arena in norway uh, where did that come from i i <laughs> i know where it came from because I, when they were first decided and it took norway a long time before they built a building like the oslo spectrum but the architects that were designing it had found out that I had worked at Madison Square Garden and they wanted to contact. Hmm. So I gave them the contact and they came to a show that I was doing um, and, and we talked for a while and they disappeared and I didn't hear from them for a long time. And then one day, I, it's the same kind of thing. I got a telephone call. You know, you know, we think that maybe you would be a good person for doing the events in the building. <laughs> huh? Well, it makes sense. I mean, you look at your past and the things you've done, then it kind of makes sense. Yes, but I, I, I wasn't dreaming about anything. Like that. I mean, when I had gotten that call, actually, I had, I was in the middle of doing 
I was doing U2, Prince, and Pink Floyd. And I got this call in the course. It was a 21-day session outside in a, a big place in, in outdoor skating rink in Oslo. And I got the call. So when I when we were doing Prince, which was the last one, I told my bosses, uh, I'll be leaving at the end of the year. <laughs> they, they were, huh? And I was there. I was going to go into the arena business, and I was going in as event coordinator, and I wound up being the director of events and the director of operations. And and the number two, when when the administrating director wasn't there, I was the administrating director, which I thought was absolutely <laughs> hysterical. Okay, so you decide that you're going to leave. Um, you're going to leave the United States and to go to Norway to follow your wife, um, which I presume. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not a, a a difficult decision to make to be with your wife. But how difficult was it to uproot your your life from your living in the states to going to Norway, which I presume you knew a little bit about and had been to. But I mean, it's a different country, and it's it's a big move. Yeah, I had visited Norway on Christmas time the year two years before, really didn't know a whole lot about it, but I knew the people were very nice and the country was full of snow. So is that a good thing um, for you? Other, th Yeah, yeah, no, I, it, I, I hadn't really thought the thought out so much, but what I can say is the experience was so traumatizing that I've always said to anybody that I've ever heard of that either have kids or were moving away from their family, I would like to sit down and talk to you for a long time about what you're going to go through because <laughs> this is going to be heartbreaking for somebody. Either your heart is going to be broken right. or the person you're together with's heart is going to be broken because moving away from home is just not to believe believed difficult. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you come from a, a good home, I came from a great place, a great neighborhood, a great family. A lot of love, a lot of really cool things going on, a lot of good people, a lot of interesting things, interesting time in in the city of Yonkers, the city of New York, the States. Um, I, I didn't want to leave. There were all these great things going on. I want, I was going for the adventure. I didn't think out how, you know, what happens when you can't talk to your friends what happens when it's so expensive to call on the telephone that you can't do that anymore? How many times can you write? Uh, you can't keep, you know, all these things, friends and family, that the separation was very difficult. How long did it take for you to feel at home in Oslo? Um, I, I, that, I, I, I think that there's still a part of me that's not at home being over here. Um, I, I feel that what I've accepted is that more than half of my life I've lived in Norway. Right. But I still call home that place I came from where I grew up, if you understand me. So, I, 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 yeah, yeah. But what, like... Like when I saw you in Memphis those times, yeah. visiting Memphis, and I know Memphis isn't home, but did you feel like being back in the States was home? Yeah. Yeah? It, yeah. Uh, 
there's, there's, there's a lot of subtle things. And this is why I said I've, if somebody was considering doing this, I'd sit down and talk to him for a long time. Um, just the difference in people's consciousness, uh, even when you've got a decent command on the language, you, you didn't grow up seeing the same things on TV. You didn't right. grow up doing the same things at school. You didn't read the same things. You didn't do the same thing. So there's a lot of common elements that you just, you can't click on the same way that you can with people that grew up in the same culture. And they don't have to be, I mean, I can sit down with somebody that was born in California in 1951 and it's just like their, their brother or sister. Right. Because it's just like we grew up in the same house. Yeah. I can't do that with anybody over here. How long did it take you to learn the language? Uh, the language came actually very slowly because the Norwegians are so proficient at speaking English that as long as they were aware of me being around, they were speaking English. So, it, you know, it, it takes a little while. And it really came in 1981 when I had Guillain-Barre, uh, I was put into a hospital for a rather long time. And because this was something that, that uh, affects your neurological system, they put me in a ward with a lot of people who had had strokes. And these people were not particularly good at speaking. Hmm. So I had to learn at while being in the hospital there, I had been fortunate enough that I was in by osmosis collecting a lot of Norwegian words, but I had no use, no reason to put them together in daily use. But in the hospital, it became a, a big difference. It really it, it gave me a chance to be part of something by speaking Norwegian, and that that kind of kicked me into the process of learning it. So, so okay. So while you were in. Norway, um, you kind of got out of the music business, and once again, it lures you back. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, and I don't know how much of that is you wanting it or just, you know. I mean, obviously, these opportunities are presented to you, but it always—it seems funny that you know you were in a band, you had a bad experience, you didn't want to have anything to do with music, and then you get into the production side, then you get into the management side, and then you get into the touring side, and then you leave, and you go to Oslo, completely different country, and then you're kind of lured back into that the entertainment business. Yeah. Well, the first year in, in Norway, I worked in a little carpenter company, and I couldn't tell you which end of the hammer you're supposed to use for what, to be honest with you. And well, I could, but I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a carpenter. I'm a Norwegian carpenter. It's hard. They're good. And the guy that had hired me was a friend of my wife's and he realized that I did have some kind of talent at getting people to do things, you know, coordinating. That's why I, I was kind of being put back on the crew kind of thing. So he had put me in charge of, of, a crew of young people that the company I was having a little bit of trouble with. And I got him to do things. We all had a great time. And at one point he had gotten a job in a, in a little theater in Oslo and they wanted to build a presidium. And well, first of all, most people didn't know what a presidium was. And I kind of like put my hand up and said, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I know, I, I, I know. Can I do it? 
So I, I had, I told my boss, I said, you know, I'll, I'll draw the whole thing. I'll do, I'll lay the whole thing out for you. I want to build it. Um, you know, I just, this is a great opportunity. A lot of fun back in the theater. Right. And without any threats or anything. So while this presidium is being built, my boss has a chat with the director of the little company that owns this theater and a couple other things that are attached to the theater. And he starts to tell the Eddie Murphy story. Right. Oh, you know, the music business. And this guy hears this thing and says, I, mm, I got to have this guy. So when the presidium is finished and it's just absolutely perfect and I'm loving it, he says, I, I think I got a job for you. Ah, I can remember it very well because I, oh, you don't have enough money. He said, well, you come and visit me tomorrow and we'll see about that. And that's just what happened. He came and he made me an offer. I just couldn't refuse. So I, I, I took the job and I told my, my friend that I remember very well because we were, it was right before my daughter was born and I was sitting at, at another job site and he had come up and, and I said, well, Pear, I'll tell you, I'm calling in well tomorrow. <laughs> what do you mean? And I said, I, Pear, I quit. <laughs> I, you, you just got me a great job. <laughs> I'm going to start in the theater. And it was a great gift because everything was different in Norway. This was a theater where I could work work together with the National Theater. We did ballet. We had a cinema. We did children's plays. We did live music. I did things for, for youth. Um, and people actually shook my hand and thanked me on the way out for putting things together. Kids would come up and thank me. Parents would come up and thank me. Musicians would thank me. Hmm. There was no New York there was no American attitude. They were, at that point, they were so hungry for anything that everything you did, you did was brilliant. That because this was a, it was a really nice little stage, and I had somebody that had hired me that really just kind of gave me carte blanche to put together a, a schedule of events that, however, it fit me. Um, we were funded by the city of of Oslo, and we had gobs of money at that point, so it just did a lot of projects that particularly for kids and we started started a number of like kind of concert band competitions uh, a series of things that we could do to keep to teach the kids that were interested in all the theater and the stuff how to design stages how to light how to do the sounds how to basically how to do the events, the security, everything, clean up, paint. And we put these projects together and the city would give me, as I said, a whole bunch of money and went around and talked to some of the big artists in, in Norway and said, would you come and play at this little place? I don't have a whole lot of money, but we're doing it for the kids. And the Norwegians just fell right into this kind of stuff. So it, that happened. And then it, wasn't long before the national television heard about this and they kind of popped up and they were doing some things. And uh, I did a bunch of things with television. And this is at the point where the, the, one of the big promoters in Norway hears about this and he comes up to me and he asked me, uh, I don't know how he hit the nail on the head so well as he did. He said, would you like to do Warren Zevon? 
you know, and this is like, I guess this is probably about 1980-ish or something like that. And from there was nothing bigger in my life than Warren Zevon at that point. And I said, oh, Jesus, what do you mean? He said, yeah, well, this would be a nice place to do it. I said, yeah, any place would be a nice place to do Warren Zevon. <laughs> it never happened. But we became good friends. And what happened was is that he could see what I had in my toolbox. And he asked if I could start coordinating his concerts and they were the big concerts going on in Oslo uh, in the sports hall that we had and a concert house and those kind of things. And I said to my boss at the time, he said, you know, this guy's asking me to do this because he said, yeah, you, no problem. You could, you know, take the day off and you want to do those shows and just come back. And so I was kind of like working both sides of it and having a great time. Wow. So I was very lucky. And beyond that, because I have to move this along because I want to get to Natadin, but you also did like other stuff like the 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 backstage manager for the opening and closing ceremonies of the Olympics in 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 Littlehammer in ninety four, which mm. which is I would presume like an insane assignment. <laughs> uh, well, I, I totally that's I think a perfect framework for it in, in my opinion. I, most people don't understand how insane it was, and I don't know if it gets any bigger than that. No, at, at least at that point, it, I couldn't put a finger on anything that came that even close to it. I, I, it's a few times in my life that I've actually been boggled by what it was I got myself into. But that was that was one of them, and um, I I can remember asking, you know, they said, "Okay, made me backstage manager, but where, you know, what are we talking about here?" and I had I quickly understood from this conversation that it went miles in all directions. It included forests and roads and infrastructure, bridges, uh, and not only you know, farms and, and animals and all sorts of stuff, but it also included in the air. I had helicopters, I had blimps, I had people in parachutes jump, jumping out, and I was like, holy crap, this is, this is big. And I think there were 5,000 people that we had to have in the process of, you know, being coordinated to go on and do the various things in the arena that they were going to do, and then there were all the... Olympic participants, a zillion military people, crews. I mean, everybody that I, that I ever had on a crew was there. And then there was all the crews from television and theaters. And uh, it was just, it, it was amazing. And we ran it because of pure determination, because there were things like Walkie-talkies didn't work, uh, no communications, minus 25 degrees, nothing is working right, everything's frozen. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of interesting attitudes and some very strange decisions are made under those circumstances. Was it a success in your eyes? Yeah. I, I didn't... I, I can remember leaving the venue on the night when we were finished with the opening ceremony and I, everybody was going to celebrate and rather than getting on the bus and going into town with them, I decided I was going to walk because I was depressed. 
I saw so many opportunities for total failure. And that was my focus. And that's the, in, I was, um, um, you know, a management planner. Uh, I looked at all those things and, uh, you know, some people say that I paint things black. It's not that I'd feel like painting them black, but I'd like to make sure that I've eliminated the risk as much as possible. So I saw all these things that had gone wrong and said, oh, Jesus, we were so lucky and I can't believe it. And I couldn't get that big celebration thing going. For, it took a long time for that to come in. But I say, yes, it was a tremendous success because, one, the effect it had on the population of Norway, the effect it had on the society of Norway was absolutely incredible. Uh, I know that one of the comments that were made that really made me kind of like, hmm, okay. Uh, NRK at one point had told me, and I don't remember what it was, but it was all many, many, many million dollars that were saved because we ran on time. Hmm. Usually they, you know, people coming in, the the um, participants are slow, this, that, and the next thing, things fall behind schedule. We ran on schedule. And I realized that, yeah, okay, um, maybe all the things I saw that went wrong, like, you know, not being able to talk to anybody in, you know, there was, I couldn't hear anybody calling anything. They, they, it had all fallen apart. Everybody knew what they were supposed to be doing. They did it. They did it right. And we did it very well. But it just took me a long time to work up that, you know, we were damn lucky. <laughs> but, I mean, I can't imagine anything of that size could ever go perfectly. And maybe I'm wrong, but I just assume that when you have that many different components, different moving parts, that it's hard to make sure everything goes perfectly. Like, at what point did you appreciate that that's the reality and the fact that you pulled it off? was still an amazing achievement. Like when you said it took me a while to realize that, how did you realize that? Well, it, it, it probably didn't come until after we had done the, the closing ceremony. But I, I think the, the main thing there for me was that that's part of the problem. And it was good for my job, but for my personality, I have a perfectionist personality problem. Right. So... I wound up criticizing a whole bunch of things in my head that could have gone wrong rather than celebrating the fact that we had just pulled off the greatest event that ever happened at that, you know, that day. Took me, took me a little while to sort out in my head those things, absolutely. So I wonder, when you go through things like that, both the opening and closing ceremonies, which is massive beyond probably anything else you've done, maybe I'm wrong, but I presume it is, then... What happens next? Like, how do you go back to something else when you've achieved those two monumental events? Well, I, I, again, I, at this point, I really, I, I had no big plans. I had been finished with the Oslo Spectrum, the arena business. Mm -hmm. And that was basically because I, I burnt myself out. And then there was the Olympics. I really didn't know what I was going to head into, but uh, there was a Norwegian artist who was was doing really, really very well at, at this time, who had gotten in touch with me. And she said, my career needs help. And I, I thought it sounded like a good idea to, to try to help her. She needed management help. She needed production help. Um, she needed even 
to a certain degree, some, you know, creative talent advice. And she was, she was having a conflict with her manager. She wanted out of that management. I had decided to go and work with her. I helped her get out of her, her contract with her manager. Uh, I had some good lawyers that I had known and they, they helped her. Uh, she was very, very popular and we had done a tour in Norway. So we put together a production, uh, which was basically this, this stuff that she wanted to do with palm trees and sort of very summer kind of thing. Got that all together with her and did her books and got her little company. She had a little company all squared away. And for me, it was, uh, I didn't know how I was going to feel about it because it was a matter of going back on tour. And I hadn't done that for many years. So right. I found myself with a whole bunch of crazy little loony musicians traipsing around Norway <laughs> in buses and hotels and holding on to things and what, you know, being the rock uh, psycho super doctor or something or other one more time. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, it just, it, it worked and she, she thanked me very much for, you know, getting this. And I had opened the door for her to go to Japan, which she did. I had set up a tour with some people in Japan to do something and came that a, a big earthquake. So that was put off, but I had, um, I had recommended that she was going to go, and start to work with that person that had had come to Stovner, uh, the Amphi place that had brought me into the promoter business in Norway, and sent her over to him. Uh, I had I, at this point I wanted to start a special events company. So I had uh, I had figured out I read a couple of books on special events and I understood what it was and nobody was really doing that in Norway and I I decided it was a grand time to start a special events company. Which is the way you yeah, kind of led you into Natarden Blues that, Festival, correct? That leads us into the Blues Festival. That's correct. Well, I had, um, with the special events company, I had taken, I had a client that was a um, a zoo, a zoo in an um, adventure park. Great place, great people. And that also led me to the Noble peace committee right who wanted to do something with kids so i put together and um an event for them which is now part of the nobel peace prize ceremony and when i had this going i was approached by a guy who had a communications company and he said he wanted to hire me and which I thought was great because I didn't like running my own company. I was just so nervous. It was just incredible. I was not any fun to, to be around. <laughs> I did not like the idea of being the boss and having to do all these things. So the idea of going to work for somebody was just absolutely brilliant. So I took my customers and I, I went to him and he had no Toad and Blues Festival as, as a client. And at that time, the reason he had them for a client probably was because he was such a finagler. He could he could get people to believe that if they used a little bit of money with him, he he would make all sorts of wonderful things happen. He was incredible at telling stories. But anyway, he was he had no Toten as clients, and 
he had asked me if I would like to get involved with them because they were thinking about they were thinking about what they should do to brand the idea of the festival in different ways. And they didn't really have a big focus, but they had some idea that maybe they could build a building. And this is this is the beginning of that book and blues building that exists today. Right. So basically what had happened was that I they he kind of just dumped them on me and they came in and they were like they, they wanted to know, you know, what they should do. And I, I told them they should own everything. They didn't listen to me, but I, I they, <laughs> European Blues Prize, own it, bring it to No No Tolden. European Blues Federation, own it, bring it to No Tolden. And that <laughs> I just I that's what I, I said, nobody owns this stuff. You own it. To some degree they started to listen, but it started our rapport. Um, they can I, can I ask you at that point, and we're talking mid nineties, late nineties, talking about 95. Okay. So at that point, paint a picture for me, what the Natarden blues festival was like, and also more importantly, what your relationship to blues was. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll start with that first. My, my relationship to blues was, uh, I was very snobby and condescending when it came to choosing who I would work with. I had not been willing to work with Norwegian artists. Um, and in 1985-ish, I think it was, the, there was a Norwegian um, an artist by the name of the Bobby Sox, wonderful people that become good friends. They won the European Blue, uh, European music contest with the first Norwegians that won it. And when I went into work and my boss told me that I would be the tour manager for them, I said, over my dead body, I'm not working with Norwegians. <laughs> now, blues blues was more or less in the same category for me for because blues was not popular. Right. I did not, I was not aware of this undergrowth in Norway um, that was bubbling around the blues thing and everything I had done in clubs and this, that, and the next thing it, that it, it, blues had become very passe. Right. So I, I didn't really consider it as um, it didn't look like the future to me at that point. Now, when it was Jostein and Espen and Aud who came to me in Oslo and we talked about things um, and Alt Finnecosa, which I don't know if, if you know her or not, but no. that's one very impressive person. And she she just had such an eye for it. She wanted quality control. She wanted project management. She wanted all these things. She, was, she talked my language. And so, so I understood they had all these dreams about positioning the festival and stuff, but I was very interested in this you know, this is this is really, this is a festival, and they're talking about all this. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So it kind of opened the door a little bit, but I had no intention in the beginning of, of having a whole lot to do with them. Um, a, a little later in the process, Al had invited me to come to the festival to help straighten up the opening ceremony. And now at this point, I've got, you know, in my head, I'm an opening ceremony master. <laughs> You've and done the Olympics. 
I'd done the Olympics. Yeah. Well, I saw the big, I saw the big lights. Yeah. You know, I was, I've been to Broadway. So I, I saw what they had and I understood what was happening. And I, I retooled that part of the festival for them. And she was very happy. They were very happy. And we started a relationship that started on that. Actually, she had, she had understood that festival had potential. I began to understood the festival had potential. And at this point, I had two other people with me that were doing production. So I was now offering production services to the festival. So what we were doing is we were going in and we were making sure that now that they were booking somebody like B.B. King, B.B. King would be coming to a professional organization. Right. Um, this was very interesting because in the beginning, we were we were hired guns. You know, we were paid. The volunteers were not paid. Right. <laughs> so we, we had we had to learn a new culture. And I th I think I did a particularly good job at that, particularly since I did not believe volunteers were good for anything at all. Because I, every time I ever had anything to do with volunteers, I usually wound up doing a whole lot of extra work. <laughs> you know, some they 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 come at the beginning, but they'd leave by the end, and somebody had to finish things. Then you always wound up being me. So I didn't like this volunteer thing so much. But I learned to respect them. I learned that No Toten was different. And it was different. They had a they had a spirit that I hadn't seen anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So they, I kind of warmed up to them, and they kind of warmed up to me. And they, I guess we got to about ninety eight or so, and um, they had they offered me to come up to the festival, and I had I'd kind of gone tired of all the stuff that I was doing in Oslo and Oslo and. Uh, I, I think mentally I was tired and, and you know, I, the idea, I, I felt I had done pretty well and I was pretty well off and I, okay, now I had been working in this communications company. I had just spent a year um, working alone on internet, writing a report for them on what is the internet. I mean, I got, I got a whole year on the net just to find out what it was all about in this company. Absolutely brilliant. So I had become a little internet kind of person, and the festival had wanted to straighten up their their page that they had the internet. And the guy who was the head of the festival at that time, Espen, had a, you know a little bit of like work for an assistant that he wanted to have done. And I thought, well, this is great. You know, I I'm financially, I think I'm in okay shape, and um, I can go to the festival and work there for a little bit. It's not going to tax me too much. And, you know, when I've got this done, I'll figure out what I'm going to do further on down the road. So I decided to take the job in No Tobin. And it didn't take much time before it turned into something totally different from <laughs> what it was supposed to be. Um, did you, were you impressed as soon as you took the job? Like you were talking about the spirit of the volunteers, but I mean, at what point? Did that also mean you were going to move to Notodden? Well, in the beginning, I didn't. I, I, I don't, you know, again, there's another one of those things that it wasn't the best thought out. <laughs> and I didn't think I was going to be there that long. Right. But I had a house in Oslo, a nice little place in Oslo. And, and I was traveling from Oslo to Notodden every day in the beginning. Which is like two hours, right? <clears throat> which was, yeah, which was I got up at five o'clock in the morning, got on a, on, a, on a subway car, got on a train, 
came to Noto and then I undid that in the evening, you know, and this, my day was all of a sudden like my, you know, it's like seven o'clock in the evening, I'm back home and this was going on for a while and decided, oh, well, okay, I'll get a little apartment at Noto. And I, that wasn't so easy to do, but I was lucky in the sense that there was a dentist here that had an extra room in his dentist's office and he decided I could live there, which I did for a while. Right. And that was pretty, so I, what I was doing is I was staying up in No Toten during the work days and going back home in the weekends. I did that for a while until I rented a house. Then I kind of figured I was living in No Toten. My wife and I moved into the house and we were there for a while. All this time, I'm still thinking I'm not going to stay all that long. <laughs> You know, I, and also for people who don't know, I mean, it's a small town. It's not Oslo, so it's an adjustment. Oh, oh it, yeah, it, it. The honest picture of Notoden is, it's a village with eight thousand people. Right. Notoden likes to say it's maybe twelve thousand people or fifteen thousand <laughs> people, but that that's the that's the county of Notoden. The town of Notoden is really small. Which is in its own way great because everybody knows everybody, and if you get along with small town, it's wonderful. Right. And being in the festival and in the position where I was meant I didn't only get I didn't get to meet everybody. Everybody liked me, luckily. <laughs> so for me to walk home from work it would take me forty five minutes because I had a chat with this one, I talked to that one, explained to this one. It was just it was a wonderful, fantastic experience. Right. I fell totally in love with No Toten. But the problem that really happened was that the festival started to have problems. When I had come to the festival and could take this job, which didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities, the managing director decides to quit. The festival, which had, when I started, I believe we had 4 million kroners. The plus side in the bank had lost money and now was on the minus. There was a crisis when the managing director left. He was also the person booking. They didn't have anybody to book. Uh, uh, you know, the, so here it was a guy that has production background. I had booking background from working with the promoter. I only came to do this little job. All of a sudden, I'm in the middle of the whole thing. Okay, I'll book the festival. Okay, I'll do the production. And... Basically, what it was was that I went back to those meetings that we had together when we first started and said, okay, they want to brand this thing. They want to make something. Let's make something out of this festival. Let's just pick this festival up and put it in on an international level for real, which meant that we had, we had to expand. We had to get more money. We had to book different kind of acts. We had to do it on a whole different level. We had to take it from being rinky-dinky to being professional. How long did that take? Uh, I'd say I'd say elements of that started to fall in place at 2004 and we had definitely definitely accomplished the golden age of No Tone Blues Festival by 2011 wow because I mean it's a, it's a festival that's well respected in the blues world around the world well Yes, and I, I'm very proud of that, you know, and that's, again, 
part of it, a very big part of it is the volunteers and that and the special quality that comes with them. They have a lot of love that they put into this thing. They have a lot of pride. They have learned how to do events in a very good fashion. I've been lucky because I've been able to bring with me my brotherhood ideas and integrate it into their way of thinking. Jostein has also been very ambitious in his dream to keep the blues not only alive but healthy. And we've had core values that have a lot to do with respect. And we put all that together and talked a lot about what we wanted to do with the festival. And we, again, it was a case of between the two of us, we were never, you know, the festival could have been as big as it was, anything was ever going to be if it was left alone to just the two of us. Right. So, so we, we weren't afraid to think big. So I have to ask, all of a sudden you put in this position of doing a lot of different things, including booking acts, and your opinion of the blues, as you had already said, wasn't that high before you got there. How did that change, and, and what might have influenced that change? I, I was dead honest with Ilstein. Right. I mean, I, we, I, I, I told you, gotta, you, you have to educate me, and he did. He took time, and he he used a lot of tender love, and and <laughs> I frustrated him very many times, but he he showed me a landscape that I fell in love with, mm -hmm. and I I was just if I could say one thing I I'm really really happy that this happened because I again was fortunate enough to come into something at the tail end of an era. And it's particularly, what I'm talking about is particularly the great black artists mm -hmm. that were living and still functioning, uh, you know, playing live. There was still some of the older gentlemen and ladies that would come out and I, I, I've, I've been exposed to them, and that it, it, it just incredible. I mean, what I learned about humanity from being part of this blues festival is is just incredible, and it's very humbling for me to understand how much I had to learn. But these wonderful people have, and that's part of the blues. It's so fantastic. There is so much humanism. So many. They're not all nice people but they're all strangely honest and just chuck full of life experience. Mm -hmm. do, do you remember a moment where you thought, oh yeah, we've turned this thing around or, you know, we've reached a point where we, we were hoping to get to? Well, that, I don't know if we ever really got all the way there, which I, but there are a number of milestones. Um, the audience and the volunteers always wanted ZZ Top. Yeah. ZZ Top was totally unapproachable for the festival. Uh, we had tried and tried, and I, I sat down and wrote a letter to the manager. I explained to him about the festival and I explained to him about the audience and I explained to him about the volunteers and the dreams 
and I put all this together in a letter and I, I sent it and he showed it to, to, Oh, what's his name? The guitar player. Billy Gibbons. Billy. Yeah. And he said, you, you just, you do not close the book on that tour yet. We need to talk to this guy. And, you know, they came back and they said, yeah, we're going to do no totem. This went in total conflict with the whole music business because ZZ Top was part of the big rock mm -hmm. world. And you had to go through channels. You had to deal with the people in Norway that had their territory and the people in England that had their territory who again went back to the States and had deals. And these people had, had not wanted us to get the hands on this artist. But because that appeal was made in that way and it went, you know, I mean, I can remember when they came and they performed and, and it was it was one of the anniversaries. Maybe it was the 25th or, or something like that. And the audience was very happy. And I mean, everybody just had a great time. And I remember Billy Gibbons gave the order, I, I want to see that guy. And he, on his command, he, he invited me in backstage and he sat me down and he played all these blue songs that he had written. He was going to have an album with his own band. And he, he was just so thrilled. I was just, it would boggle my mind that I didn't, I <laughs> called me into the audience and I, you know, but he, he had caught this no totem spirit. Yeah. You know, and he'd been back, you know, with the other projects. He's had a great time. He said, he loves no totem. He's one of the people that has seen what no totem is about and has fallen in love. Well, I would imagine most people who've had the experience of going to that festival have that feeling. You know, I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the only disadvantage is that sometimes you, you're dealing with the weather elements and, and bad weather and all that. But other than that, I mean, it's a very special place. And I, I think you said 8,000 people live in the city. But when that festival is going on, isn't it like 30,000 people who come to this to this city? There, ha there have been years when it's up like that. That's absolutely yeah. true. Um, I, I, yeah, but I think it's because we did it the right way. We did it. We never compromised on respect. We were willing. We didn't have all the money in the world, but we talk. We tell what our dreams were. We asked people to participate. I can remember when we were starting the museum at the Book and Blues House. And there were years I used to write to people and say, "Could you donate something to? Our, you know, we're going to do. A, a, we're going to have some exhibitions and stuff like that. And you know, your sneakers, your picks, your slide." something but when you come here can you bring something you know and people always wanted to be part of this when they understood what no totem was about yeah i know that you know when i was there you were just you, you were very busy during the, the the for the weekend and whatever and you had a lot of things to deal mm -hmm. with but were there moments where you could actually sit down and appreciate the music well i you know, actually, you know, every year it was like this. If I did my job right, I could actually take time during the festival. I didn't do it often, but, you know, I made the plans. I ordered things. I scheduled. I distributed information. I made the command line. This is how it did it. And if I did a good job of doing that, 
I didn't really have a lot to do with the festival. My interpretation of what I had to do always during the days of the festival was to rotate through the festival and check to see that things were working the way they're supposed to be working and be available for the unexpected thing that you couldn't plan for. Right. Of which there were many, I presume. Well, well, not as many as you would think. We had a we had an absolutely wonderful organization. It's still a wonderful organization. And things usually work pretty well. But, I mean, how in the world do you prepare for uh, Clarence Gatemouth not bringing his teeth and not eating for a couple of days and locking himself up in his room to the point that he's dehydrated and you don't know whether he's going to die or whether he's going to perform. Right. You know, that's the kind of, but those were rare things. Can you, can you share with me one or two other like really special moments that you've had? Like the well, Billy Gibbons is pretty amazing. But yeah, that, 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 I thought that was pretty good too. <laughs> it, it was a little bit the same with, with uh, Jeff Healy. Um, Jeff fell in love with the festival and, and he had demanded when he got off stage that I call him up because he wanted to come back. I, I, I thought the world of Jeff Healy in every way as an artist and as a person, he was really very special. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, he, he had a very special sense of humor. A very He had great band, fantastic music, and then to watch somebody play guitar in the fashion he played guitar it was, it was just total magic. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the stories that, that – will always be right up there on the top is, is kind of that David Lindley Jackson Brown story. Cause it's a very charming story in, in, in many ways. And we had booked David Lindley and it, we kind of, David was on tour with Jackson, just the two of them. And we were just lucky that there was, there was a hole in the schedule and, and David's agent had just said, you know, I think we can make this work. And he kind of left it there and, um, I had been David's tour manager in the eighties and so we, we knew one another and we, you know, David's a person that if he trusts you, he'll do anything for you. He's a wonderful soul. I really like David. And, um, I was real excited about this. I hadn't seen him in a while and I, you know, I thought he was a perfect fit for the festival, which he was. And as things developed, it, we, I started to realize that nay, this might not work because there's no commercial flights that are going to work together with, they were, I believe in Scotland and had to get to Spain the day after. And the times that they were going to be in places was not going to work with any planes that I could get them to, or they came to Norway. So just really kind of as a joke, uh, and David and I had been communicating directly because he was going to send some special instruments from home. So he had he had gotten in touch with me, and I was enjoying the communications, and so I understood this was happening. And as a joke, I was just you know you're traveling with Jackson, and you guys are traveling in Jackson's plane. Why don't you tell you know borrow Jackson's plane and while you're at it, bring him along? <laughs> and David really didn't respond to that, so I I I didn't really think that was going to happen, but I did think that he might borrow Jackson's plane. And that kind of started to progress. And I was look, looking at opportunities to land the plane first in Nolthoden, but the plane was too big to land in Nolthoden. So there was uh, uh, an airport in, 
in Sheehan, which is you know about an hour away. And so it looked like, okay, we're, we're out of the, can you get David to the festival or not problem. Um, and it, it went like maybe a week before the festival, and the tour manager who was working with the two of them, who was Jackson's tour manager from some years ago, who I knew pretty well from before, he called and he said, uh, you know, we're going to need this, this, and this. And by the way, uh, Jackson's going to come. I said, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah he's, and I said, do you think there's any way he could he could maybe play a couple tunes? Oh, hell, he's bringing a guitar. He's going to play. And I was Darn, okay. And now I'm also being told that I'm not supposed to know this. <laughs> <laughs> right? So this has got to, this goes a couple of days until I, you know, basically what happens is we start the festival and David Lindley is coming and we know he's coming by plane, but I'm not allowed to tell anybody that Jackson is coming and he's going to be a guest. But you have to make accommodation arrangements and. Oh, oh I can do all I, I, I did all those myself. Well, okay. So all, all that's been done, that's not a problem. I got that under control. But nobody knows that Jackson is going to come and play. <laughs> so it's the same day as the performance. And I think this is a Saturday, if I remember correct. So we we had started the festival. It starts on Thursday and gone through Friday. And about 12 o'clock on Saturday, I'm given permission to tell anybody I want to tell that Jackson Brown is going to be David Lindley's guest at the performance in the night. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it went through the town of Notoden like lightning, which was great. And they performed, uh, it, it was, it was, uh, it was just so incredible to see the two of them perform the songs they performed together and in the way they do. And they, they actually, when they, they came and they went up on stage they they did their guitar things with restringing and fixing and all this that and the next thing. They were having such a good time. They decided not to eat. They would just hang around until they were gonna play. They you know, it was they were they they're best friends. They love playing with one another. They had a great time. We met and there was a picture taken and they got on the bus and they left. <laughs> But it was brilliant. Wow. Those. I'm sure you have like hundreds of those stories. They probably are. I just can't remember hundreds of them. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for doing this. Um, as I said, we sat down in Memphis many years ago. We had breakfast together and it was, I was just in awe listening to your stories. And I've always thought I'd like to, you know, interview you for something and when the opportunity came up with the podcast and I approached you, you kindly said yes, and I really appreciate that. Um, it's it's always been a fun time when I sit down and talk to you, and this is certainly another one of those examples. Well, Marco, from those days in Memphis, I have always dreamed that I would have the opportunity to sit down like this with you. <laughs> Nobody has ever impressed me in doing interviews as much as you impress me, how comfortable you get people to feel, what a good time everybody has talking to you, and how you make it into a very fun and interesting format that is really listenable and great to be part of. Wow, you're, so, you're too kind. 
uh, I need to send you a check on something or what, right? <laughs> well, you got the you got the account number. Okay. <laughs> but thank you, Ed. This is great. I really appreciate you, you going through your fascinating life. Like it to me, when you listen to all the things that you've done, from being a musician to, you know, being a stage manager to doing production to doing tour management. I mean, it just seems like the Natalden Blues Festival job was meant for you. It's like it's like everything else in your life prepared you to do that. Even maybe the carpentry job. I've been a very fortunate person. Yeah. I, I know that Natalden has been a, a a gem in my life, and I, I I love it. I mean, I've got stuck, but um, I I've. I, I've loved the things I've done. I love the life I've lived, and I, I know I've been a very fortunate person. Well, so thank you so yep. much for sharing that with us. Thank you, and, and say hi. Hi.